2: Hello and welcome to the latest and somewhat different edition of the Penguin podcast. I'm not Richard E. Grant. I'm in fact Marcus Speller from the Football Ramble, and I'm here with my usual outfit of Jim Campbell. Hello, Luke Moore. All right. And Pete Donaldson. Good afternoon. Mm, So, for those of you who might not be familiar with the Football Ramble, it's a podcast about football in which we ramble. And we've now turned our ramblings into a book also called the Football Ramble. For this special Penguin podcast, we will obviously be talking about football and we'll also be hearing some clips from the audio edition of the new book. And of course, as with all of Penguin's guests, we've all brought in some important objects with us to the studio that have proved significant to our careers. If you can call them careers, yeah. <laughs>
1: mm.
0: Our burgeoning careers. We were allowed in the
1: building and that's the best it's going to get for me, yeah. I think.
3: I mean, that's, that's a pinnacle.
1: Yeah. <laughs> being allowed in a building. Yeah, someone showing you into a room and giving you a cup of tea.
2: Mm. But first up, football and books, perhaps not a subject with the finest literary tradition. Uh, there are some good football books. Yes. For those who are not aware, and mm. there are some not so good football
1: books. In which camp do we find ourselves? <laughs> is we'll the find, question. we'll wait
0: and see. I, I think coming down on the side of the good football books, one mm. that springs to mind for me is All Played Out by Pete Davis, which yes. actually was re-released as a book called One Night in Turin. Um, and he spent a lot of time out in Italy for World Cup 1990 and talks about the implications of, of how it was received and what mm-hmm. happened and, and how that went on to form the Premier League as we now know it, indirectly. Uh, but also you know, the fan trouble and all, all the drama that happened with Paul Gascoigne's tears and all that stuff. For me, that sticks in the mind as an excellent mm. football book.
2: 1990, of course, was a great one for, for England football fans because yeah. you Gascoigne, Lineker, Waddle, mm. Barnes, those mm. types of players in England actually did pretty well. So yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. on, on the, even in the name of nostalgia,
3: it was a good one. Exactly, mm. And also, I guess, you know football autobiographies are an obvious uh, genre of, of that, that type of book and um, obviously there are lots of terrible ones but some <laughs> of the standout ones, Diego Maradona's, is an incredible book because yeah. obviously he was an incredible man and it sort of encapsulates what a lot of us love about football which is that he had this incredible skill that was like verged on artistry but was also just this fascinating and basically absurd character. Troubled. So The collision of that yeah. makes it such an entertaining read. I imagine that's the sort of book that people would like even if they're not that into football just because you, you just have to marvel at the man's decision Making process <laughs> but it, it, it kind of um, transcends
2: the sport, doesn't it? A character mm. like Diego Maradona—it's yeah. a bit like you wouldn't have to be into basketball to read Michael Jordan's mm. autobiography or, or Muhammad but, Ali. Yeah, exactly. But if you like basketball, that would be utterly irrelevant. <laughs> but with with Maradona's one, his phrase or choice of words or turn of phrase is yeah. so ridiculous. You
3: think to yourself, his ghostwriter had one hell of a task. Yeah. yeah. Well, the ghostwriter actually says that there are specific phrases that look like they've been strangely translated about it to point out. No, when he says he let the dog what, what is it he let the tortoise get away from him yeah. is when someone's missed an opportunity or he should give the dog his face back is when someone's been a hypocrite they are at pains to go these are not sayings he these he are talks things with... only <laughs> he said
0: he almost like talks with his own language but so Alex Ferguson has also written in my view one of the best autobiographies i in my life um, but he also written one of the worst as well in his yeah. second edition um, later much later in his career mm. which seemed to be written for a lot more of a broad audience and mm-hmm. really not that good but the first it's as bad as the first one is good I mean the first one is absolutely superb yeah. his, his story is such an interesting sort of like a book of two halves if we're using football we, we, the, fir- the first one stops uh, when they win the treble Manchester United mm. win the treble in 1999 and that's when the first book stops and the second book starts a lot it obviously comes on a lot later it was only released a few years ago but so one man has actually written one of the best and one of the worst in, in my view certainly but yeah. isn't
1: that indicative of a career um dealing with PR and dealing Quite. with kind of keeping yeah. everything in the dressing room and stuff like yeah. that it's going to translate at the end of the day
0: yeah, because there's so much more attention on it these days, mm. even when compared to when he wrote that book, which would have been in the summer of 1999. Mm. Clearly, he was he felt like he was much more able to get away with being honest and a lot more forthright with his opinions, something for wh- whatever reason he didn't feel like it could yeah. be got away with in 2014 mm. or whatever it was. He mm. to also, as well, poetry. after that,
3: it's the, the pinnacle of his career, really. So he's sort of invincible mm.
0: in, yeah. a, in a different way.
3: Well, well, you know, hopefully the book isn't the pinnacle of our career. We <laughs>
2: hope that there's a lot more to come. Well,
1: I've been very honest about Alex Ferguson in it, so... Yeah, you asked. <laughs> I was that's very say, giving of me I we, think
2: we were very forthright with our opinions yeah exactly and unlike Diego Maradona we do use phrases and uh, and words that you will understand in common parlance <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> that's right well let's hear a clip from uh, our book uh, The Football Ramble our fantastic book if I may say so
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean even if you're not a football fan yeah. the, you should buy 100 copies yeah, hopefully <laughs> there will be something in here yeah. for, for you cause as more of a sort of general broad chat about the, the phenomenon that is football and the entertainment that goes along with it and the relationship between it and things like the media and other bits and pieces there should be something of interest in there for you. It's
3: like our love letter to it that's also about it. Yeah. Of yeah. course
1: I mean, of yeah, I Certainly from my perspective I don't read a lot of football books I find them very kind of small minded And they don't really talk about the culture outside of football mm, I think that's mm. something that we've always said That we would do if we ever got a book deal And we got book deals and that's what we're doing so <laughs> We stuck to our task <laughs> <laughs> And often football mirrors
2: society And there's, there's a much bigger thing as you say going mm. on um, If you don't like football We think that's a shame perhaps mm. But here's Jim with the start of his chapter In the book called Fans
3: People who don't like football Have no idea what they're missing They think they do, but they don't. They'll often take pride in not liking it, wearing a look that suggests they think they should be heralded as free-thinking mavericks when they reveal that actually they don't care about 22 millionaires kicking a ball around as if they're Stuart Lee, when in fact they're Stuart Lee, your cousin's new IT consultant boyfriend who you're sat next to at a wedding. Fair enough though, Stu. Nobody has to like anything. Even so, you don't know what you're missing. Most of us start off as kids. In terms of following football, that is, we all start off as kids apart from FIFA executives. Most of them seem to have been born despicable old men, maybe even hatched. Anyway, most fans are indoctrinated by a parent or support their local team because they live in a one-club town. Others pick a team when they discover football at school and yet more get into it because they had a grandparent, uncle or dog who lived in Manchester, Liverpool or Barcelona, every school had one, depending on who's winning at the time. Whatever your choice and however you make it, it's with you forever, like a cool-looking scar or cold sores. (laughs) Jim with his uh, section from his
2: chapter called Fans. We're all fans of the game. Yeah, that's um, where,
0: that's where this, this story starts, isn't it, really? I mean, we all came together as yeah. a group because we're fans of football first mm-hmm. and foremost, and that's really what underpins everything absolutely. We, we're doing now. I think, I
1: think I joined the Ramble because I had access to radio studios, so I think that's very much...
0: Yeah, you
3: were very much a tactical move.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but, 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 but you say that, people, in many ways. We're talking about just being fans. You're the man who goes to just as, as many games as the rest of us, if not yeah. more. You, you follow mm-hmm. Newcastle fairly closely for a Londoner, I would suggest.
1: Yeah, uh, I try and get to do as many, certainly, London away it matches. It's, I, I just like the whole... I like the pageantry of it all. And I always yeah. have. I've always liked attending games. It's not necessarily about what happens on the pitch. For example, the story that I deal with in the book a couple of times is a man eating an advent calendar at full of months, yeah. uh, sharing an advent <laughs> calendar with his son. It was only like the 10th of December. That's the annoying thing. Wow. Maybe they just got it from cheap from Tesco. How decadent.
0: But... Mm. My, my, uh, my earliest memory of, of being a football fan is that going to Fratton Park, uh, mm. which is where Portsmouth play, where I'm from, the team I support, uh, with my uncle, uh, who's who sadly passed on now. But he first introduced me to the excitement of going to a game and and Mm. because everyone sees football on TV Now I know back when we were were a bit younger football wasn't on TV as much as it is Mm. now but you're still aware of it you know the football's there but it's only when you go to a game for the first time especially if you go at a very impressionable young age that you think wow this is something really special Mm. I can remember the whole crowd almost feeling like there was one like it was one organism and for me after that it was it wasn't even like I was like, I was hooked, like the whole cliche people I was hooked. For yeah. me, it just seemed completely impossible for football to not be a part of my life from that on. It was like, mm. why would you never want to be a part uh, of
2: that? But I think a lot of people think that, you know, that, that football is just another part of their life in the same sense that being at school is a part of your life, growing up and going to work is a part of your life. Yeah. But the, the, the example you're using there about Portsmouth is a very traditional kind of working class kind of thing. And Pete, actually, before you used to go and watch Newcastle, you would go and watch Hartlepool. Again, a much more kind of local kind of feel. But Jim... You are an Arsenal fan. Yeah. If you go and watch Arsenal now, it will cost about sixty quid or something. Yeah, it's an
3: inc- incredibly expensive. Very,
2: thing. very different experience, yeah. and
3: one that actually turns a lot of people off football. Indeed, and uh, also, I mean, Arsenal are a great example because if things aren't going well, the fans get frustrated that they're paying so much, and it, it sort of poisons the atmosphere a little bit as well. So it's it's definitely a, it's a strange modern phenomenon that. Um... But as the Arsenal fan,
0: can you understand when people say because it happens more more and more these days? Oh, I've fallen out of love with the game anymore. There's nothing there for me anymore. Absolutely.
3: I mean, I've certainly been in a situation where I've been to a game and it's cost me maybe fifty quid, which, like, which is pretty much the cheapest ticket you can get. I remember watching us draw nil-nil with Fulham. Andre Arshavin ran about as much as I did. And I was just thinking, like, I, I, it's not like I ever regretted going and I would happily pay to support my team as I will do in the future and probably for as long as I live. But for me, I think being a fan of football is, is actually also so much more, or about so much more than, than the game itself. I think if it's being football with a capital F, almost like it's a universe that you invest in, in the same way you do like in, in like the Star Wars movie universe. You know, it's, <laughs> it's about the characters in the game as well, and all those, those yeah. mad Funny little things that happen when you know you get these men who are professional athletes who are then suddenly very rich, very famous, and they behave in ways that are very weird. And uh, as mm. I'm sure we all would, and I sort of love that kind of pantomime soap opera element of it as well. Indeed. And of course, you explore that in your chapter very much, uh, fans so. yeah. in, well, in the book. I and think we, that's uh, what
0: bonds, sorry, Marcus. I think that's what bonds us as far as just because we don't. The four of us don't really take the game too seriously did we I don't, no. I don't really i don't really remember any of us getting fully angry about something within the game we mm. sort of try and see it for, for what it is and, and mm. a, a pastime essentially and the humor around yeah, it yeah. is something that you always need to keep sight of. yeah
1: definitely yeah. And, it, and it teaches a lot about temperance about humility about the fact that things aren't always going to go your way mm-hmm. i think football could teach a lot of people a lot of things about themselves mm. in many ways
2: indeed we're going to move on to um the first of our objects that we've brought in and it's funny you talk about People falling out of love with the game. I've brought um, an item along, which uh, a lot of people have fallen out of love with in this <laughs> country. It's, it's an England kit. It's actually a Euro two thousand twelve England kit. Uh, a big three lines badge uh, in red. Often it's uh, in a kind of a navy blue and whatnot. Mm. And it's a long sleeve jersey mm, as well. Right. It's quite a nice one, looking back at it. Yeah, they
0: change. They an awful lot these days.
2: It's a good. It's a sort of modern classic. That mm. I, would, I would sort of go as far to say. But the, the reason why I brought that in is in the section of the book I wrote the foreword. I talk quite a bit about England or international tournaments, certainly. Mm. And that's actually, that was the first love for me. I came in in 1990 uh, as a young sort of seven or eight year old at the time. And, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. That was when my love of football was really ignited. And it was England. And England got to a semi-final yeah. of a competition. And six years later, got to another semi-final of a
3: competition and looked like they could have won it. And we, At the time, we all thought we were underachieving.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> right. insane, isn't it? You see, you see, that's I remember it well. And at that point, when we went out in the semi-finals to the West German penalties, mm-hmm. it felt like a missed opportunity. Mm. Huge Whereas if it, if it happened now, it would feel like we'd already won. Anything yeah. we get now is a bonus because we, we, we are so poor now that mm-hmm. if we got to that level, it would be just a huge success whatever yeah. the circumstances. Yeah.
2: But, but I I picked this, I mean, there was a number of England kits I own and I, and I could have brought them, but but that actually was um, the first time because we went as a group to, to Kiev, to Ukraine right. during yeah. that tournament and that was the first time I'd seen England in a tournament match. Yeah. And what a collector's item it was. They, they played Sweden and won 3-2. I mean, to see a five-goal thriller involving England and England
3: being on the right side of it yeah, in yeah. a tournament, my goodness. we hadn't beaten Sweden in a long time in a tournament, had we? I think maybe even ever at the time? It, it, they it was were a bogey some, side. Something like that, wasn't it? They, they were a bogey side for England, certainly.
2: But for me, international football is still the pinnacle of the game. I know I part ways with a lot of people there, and I understand that because the Champions League is, is often seen as the best uh, level, I suppose yeah. level of, an arena of of football, but international football is slightly different. But the the feeling of being at a tournament, watching your team, and, and interacting with fans from all around the world, and so on. It, it's so good to me. That's it brings out the best and worst, granted, of people in football. But but that's where, to me, it's at its best. So yeah, my item there, the the, the England kit of, of Euro two thousand and twelve. But it could have been of, of a number of uh, different tournaments, uh, of course. Right, let's get back to our book, and this is a clip from the um, the opening chapter, all about the history of the game, also written by Jim. Campbell, yeah, uh, Jim, you're up again. He tried to monopolise it. it. He didn't write all of it.
3: it <laughs> I, I, of I point. have written a whole book, but um, <laughs> mostly it was cut. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and we had to pick up the slack, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
3: So what is it exactly about balls? There's something irresistible about balls. If a ball is nearby, then every atom of you is compelled to bounce it, throw it, or kick it. It calls to you like a mysterious orb made of pure fun. You don't know why, you sometimes don't even notice it happening, but you just need to play with it. Much is written about how football began, about who invented it, and at what point it became enough like the game we have today to be considered football. Maybe it exists because it has to. Something about us needs to kick around a spherical object, and football has evolved so that we can satisfy this urge. Its true beginnings probably come from our ancient ancestors kicking fruit about, because when there's a roundish object on the ground, something inside us just has to absolutely leather it. Even as a 34-year-old man, I'm still tempted by every stray bottle cap I come across. In fact, I once broke my toe attempting to kick one, but that's a story for another book. Kicking things is fun. Throw in an objective like scoring to give it some competitive purpose and you have a sport. That was uh, from the chapter
2: History by Jim in in the Football Rumble book. It's true. When you see a spherical object, you have to kick it. Yeah. (laughs) As long as it won't like break your foot if it's well, like, my, made of concrete. my
1: earliest kind of footballing memory going to St James's Park, obviously my home stadium, uh, wasn't even about the beating of Aston Villa one 0 Les Ferdinand header. It's all in the book, <laughs> all in the book. Yeah. Um, but it was actually on on the walk up to those that, that famous kind of greying St James's Park building stadium thing, a man drunkenly tried to kick a can, mm. but he was so drunk he missed and fell on his behind, and I and I'd never seen a grown man.
0: You thought Just, this day's already a success. I thought, yeah, exactly.
1: I don't care what happens in the football. Yeah, yeah. This man has made a fool of himself thanks to gravity and alcohol. Yeah, yeah today's already I, a win. Yeah, exactly. Win. And, and later on, I, I picked up the particular baton and, and indulged in that sort of thing myself. Yeah. But yeah, it was Excellent. really, you know. And one of the
0: things I, I found great about the book we, we wrote is that the process involved, because we all took different chapters, mm. different areas of the game. So for me, reading what um, you guys had written was new. It was all very mm. new. And, and in the history chapter, Jim, was there anything that sticks out particularly that, that it was really surprising or fascinating or interesting. I imagine quite a lot of it because yeah. you had to condense essentially 1,500 years or whatever of history yeah. into the beginning of, of, of the game as we know it, mm-hmm. into one chapter. So there must have been loads of stuff in there that you found fascinating.
3: Absolutely. For me, the stuff before actual football as we know it formed because uh, the Chinese had a sport called Kuju which FIFA recognizes as, as basically the first football and it, mm. it's actually pretty amazing how similar the game was in a lot of senses. I mean, it did change to almost become like a sort of cross between kind of volleyball and a, and a few other sports but... It it had professional clubs. It had a professional league. Like that, that's they're seen as the first professional clubs all over the world, and it, it was around for a long, long time, way longer than football's it ever been. And it's incredible to basically think that a similar thing to this has, has happened
2: before. It doesn't surprise me though. It reminds me of uh, I think it was Brian Robson who said if football didn't exist, we'd all be very frustrated footballers. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it is that thing going back to what you said about kicking balls and whatnot. Yeah, it just seems for most people on the planet quite a natural
3: thing to do it's a danger to have a ball in your, in your house isn't it <laughs> stuff's going to get broken because you can't help yourself but as well as that there was also kind of in England mob football as it yeah, was known where right. in, entire towns would play yeah. against each other and you'd win a game by, by getting a version of a ball onto your rival town's church balcony in some yeah. cases I mean, it was and a pig's bladder damage was yeah. rife it was completely normal and it was, it was yeah. properly lawless and it, it just sounds like absolute chaos yeah, and it, was, was like a,
2: it was like a riot dressed up yeah. as a football it was yeah.
3: but actually sometimes they were organised as a pretext to riot but <laughs> <laughs>
2: But it is incredible when you think about uh, how that was the origins of the game to what we have now. Mm. To goal-line technology. It, to goal-line technology. Mm. It is absolutely incredible, the rise of the game in relatively a small period of time in historical terms. It's fascinating mm. This multi billion pound industry. And it seems
0: to be developing faster and faster the more we yeah. move through yeah. because there's more opportunity for it, because there's a bigger audience, because people get better at marketing, because mm. there's more money, all that stuff. And it's just getting faster and faster. Yeah. Than and the more problem.
1: abstract, I'd say. If you sort of, if an alien came down now and went, why have you tidied this whole mob football thing up? Yeah, that was great. And why are you selling it to people? That. Yeah. <laughs> why are you
0: selling it to people? Why are people buying it? It's mm. so kind of homogenised and tidy. But one of the things we have in our locker as Englishmen, I suppose, is the fact that we do have the Football Association who, yeah, who actually formalised who, it. Who, who, who claim that they invented it, but actually essentially what they did, as we found when researching the book, they formalised it and made it mm. more about typical British, more about rules and yep. doing things the right way. Mm. And, and that's where that's the playbook now, isn't it? That's mm. where it all it all sprang from around, around the late nineties. Century Ru- or whatever.
3: Rugby league and also um, eventually Aussie rules all sprang from breakaways into different codes right. from that one meeting where, where all that was okay. standardized. So that is a, a productive yeah. afternoon. Yeah. Again, one of the fascinating things about the historical side of it was how many sort of similar games popped up in different civilizations who couldn't possibly have known about each other all mm. over the world. Like in South America in a region called Mesoamerica, they would use um, like rubber balls because obviously they had rubber trees yeah. um, so that they'd be solid rubber and you play it with your hip and players would die from internal bleeding just from playing the game as it was supposed to be played because the ancient world was brutal
0: and it was about if you won the game in some cases you would be sacrificed and that no was it was if you lost the game oh, okay, the, the right.
3: captain or sometimes the, the, the whole team depending on the lunar cycle right. would, uh, would be sacrificed oh, but okay. it was, that was a won. great honour I right, yeah. would give half the Newcastle squad
1: to the gods <laughs> at certain times during the season <laughs> mm-hmm. quite happily I'm sure Mike
2: Ashley the club's owner yeah. wouldn't agree <laughs> yeah. or maybe he would we'll have to uh, get in touch with him and let's move on to our next object this is your object Pete it's a match day ticket
1: It is a matchday ticket, yeah. Um, You know when you're sort of looking for something in particular, it's actually quite hard to kind of locate it in your house. Especially if it's that small. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I found that in my drawer. That uh, is a ticket from the old Berlin ground, the uh, old West Ham ground, uh, when I went to see Newcastle play, and I was in the away section, Mm -hmm. and uh, I mentioned a little story in the book where I'm leaving after the match finished, I think Newcastle may have won 1-0 or maybe 2-1. It doesn't really matter. But either way, uh, we're walking past the head of like a Muslim organisation. Mm-hmm. And knowing football fans, they're idiots. They're, they're frequently a little bit right wing. They're frequently silly. but well, not always, obviously. And we're all walking past. And, and you can see that outside this Muslim association, it's an association that runs pretty much all the mosques in mm-hmm. in, in uh, the south of England. And they've got two burly blokes kind of yeah. posted on the front. So that if anyone you know starts trouble or throws anything or says. Anything, mm-hmm. they've got a little bit of protection, and uh, it gets a bit quiet. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a bit of a, an atmosphere forms, and it's it's a little bit um not upsetting, just a bit ominous. You you think sure. that someone's going to shout something because people do, and football fans, as you say, can be very insensitive, exactly, and, and can cause un- so, ugly scenes. So, walking past one of the biggest Muslim <laughs> associations of uh, of the UK, and one lad shouts or starts to shout the word Muslims. And I bristle. I'm like, here we go. I've got to pretend I'm not part of this. <laughs> this throng of Geordies. Again. Again.
0: <laughs> Your Honour.
1: I'm going to commando roll into this car. Uh, No, his actual chant was "Muslims are a Geordie." Muslims are a Geordie. It's the whole kind of like uh, manager. Insert manager's name is a Geordie. Yeah, so and so is a Geordie. He's one of us. Yeah. Yeah. So Muslims are a Geordie, and I've never been. Did everyone start singing along? Everyone started singing along. The whole crowd was singing "Muslims are a Geordie," which is a beautiful kind of, especially in the north east of England, which is not always thought of as being particularly temperate. You know what I mean? Yeah. The the ticket itself has got
0: a grease stain on it. Pie. OK, <laughs> I, I, I genuinely was interested. It was pie. Yeah. Um, do you like a match day pie? I
1: do like a match day pie. Well, I used to work for Leicester City Football Club back at Philbert Street. And yeah, I, before I, they were champions. Before yeah. they were champions, let's make that very clear. I you set, played your part. I, <laughs> set the foundations. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I used to work for Leicester City and I used to uh, I used to serve pies. So I know exactly how delicious they can be. Yeah, indeed. Because we didn't sell all of them every day. The um, we used to be able to walk home with them because you can't sell them again like two weeks later. Certainly not. I imagine
0: some football clubs might well do that. In, in
1: the book <laughs> itself, there's a fascinating passage where I go into the uh, foil cords on the pies. Chicken, balty, red... <laughs> Don't give it uh, away, man. It's a spoiler, man. No, I was going to say.
3: chicken and mushroom. Yeah, it's a And it goes on like that, really. You and your fascinating passages. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so,
2: this was obviously, as you say, at the bowling grounds, mm. or Upton Park, as people often refer to it, West Ham's old stadium. The stand you were in was the Bobby Moore Upper, mm. which is lovely, isn't it? When you think, I mean, that, that's, that's named after the great... So bobby moore and you think where west ham are now in the uh, in the old olympic stadium or well, the sort of old olympic stadium new olympic stadium mm, i suppose both are in the London old memory, stadium did you, did you guys well, to... it is the old olympic stadium because it's not currently used. the former mm. olympic stadium then maybe that's more accurate all right chaps it's time to hear something else from our audiobook of the football ramble this time it's a chapter that isn't written by jim luke you did the honors for this one called media plenty to talk about here but let's hear a clip first
0: Football has gone from a pastime conducted on a Saturday afternoon in your local area with like-minded individuals to an ever-present, ever-evolving 24-hour pantomime set inside a huge circus and the modern media has made it impossible for any of us to miss a single beat. From 24-hour rolling news channels all over the world to the internet and from more than 150 live games shown each season just in the top flight in England alone to countless radio phone-ins, YouTube channels and fan forums – We truly now live in the football age. It permeates every level of our discourse and consciousness. It's a wonder any of us get anything done. In fact, thinking about it, do we actually get anything done? Maybe that's why the economy's in the toilet and it has been since 2008. It wasn't a financial crisis. It was football's ability to finally invade every single part of our collective lives and stop us concentrating on the important stuff. We should probably start thinking about how to sort it out. Problem is, I'm way too busy watching backhill goals from the Argentinian 2nd Division on Vine to dedicate any time to it at the moment. It's probably possible to conclude that these days the media is almost as important as the game itself. One can hardly exist without the other. Football owes its very livelihood to the money it receives from TV networks and, at the last count, that amounted to just over £5 billion for the right to show the Premier League from 2016 to 2019 in the UK alone. With those TV networks then subsequently beholden to the amount of subscriptions and viewers they can attract, both rely on the other for their very survival.
2: That was taken from the chapter Media in the Football Ramble book by Luke Moore. The media machine that Mm. is uh, alive and very well in, in football is quite something to behold. Do we belong to it? I Very think, much so. Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think, we, I think we do. and, and, and
3: we sort of snuck into it. Yeah, yeah. through the back
0: door maybe. But we, we don't make any money.
3: We are stowaways in the media machine.
0: That's something that becomes sort of quite apparent when I was writing, actually. Mm. Because we, we, you go through all the traditional media and, and it was quite interesting to look at how radio first, then newspapers and then television got involved in football and realised mm. that it was popular. And then you obviously naturally, chronologically move through how the media interacts with football. Mm-hmm. And towards the end of the chapter, I did realise that actually we are very much a part of it. Yeah. I mean, because I start talking about things like YouTube channels and fan forums and internet and its relationship and w- with the game. Um, and you are a part of it. And you almost find mm. yourself commenting on yourself. And, and, and we talk about this all-sigging, all-dancing machine of, of football media, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. And yeah, we're very much part of that. And
2: when you do a podcast like we do, or or anything in the game, when you're talking about what's going on, you need to keep up with it because so much stuff can happen in a day. Yeah. Inevitably, it doesn't, but it can do. And you, you. Find yourself drawn into these kind of twenty-four hour rolling mm. football news outlets and so on and so forth, and you sit there going, "Man, this is this is the death of news." At one point, but at another point, you
3: are watching it, aren't you? Yeah, and also, I mean, people within it—they they almost cease to feel like real people. Like Mario Balotelli feels like a fictional character out there yeah. doing all these things for the benefit or of Or just us a character from YouTube. a film or something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
0: The problem that football may have in the future, and I talk about this elsewhere in the book, actually, is that its its very popularity is is intrinsically based on the fact that it's at its heart a simple game so Mm. the fact Mm -hmm. if you want to go out into the park over the back of your house with your pals and a ball you can essentially replicate in your own mind at least whatever you want to replicate and when football keeps going on that relentless quest for commercialism for more money for more um accountability when it comes to laws and rules like video replaying that sort of stuff they have to i'm not going to get into the bet whether that's a good thing or a bad thing but they have to be careful that they're not going to change it so intrinsically that yeah. it becomes something that people on the street mm. don't recognise anymore. Mm. And I think a lot of people, as we talked about earlier, just, just with Jim about people being turned off by the game, I think a lot of people feel that like that moment might have already come. Do I you
3: think, think it's getting to the point where kids are nicking their dad's shaving foam to take it down the park and use it as vanishing spray? Yeah. <laughs> <So> you're going <gonna laughs> need more and more accessories. I don't think we've got to that yet, but I do say the word yet. I think um, with football, you're right, look, it's a
2: very simple game but yet people try and add so many layers onto it. And you see it with computer games as well. That they're, they're a big one where people almost say live out your reality through this. But actually, the game is what really we all care about. You, know, you, can, you can recreate things, you can have different clips yeah. and, and whatnot. But when you, and Pete, you're, you're big on this as well, and, and rightly so, I think we all are. In any kind of media outlet, whether it's a commentator, a pundit, uh, someone who's created, as I say, a game, or whatever it may be, if you think for a second that you are more important than a substitute sitting on the bench of a lower league club who's actually playing
1: the game, then you're in trouble. Mm. Mm. And, and, And I think accessibility for me was quite big in my stadium chapter, for example. The provision for disabled supporters is obscene. And, and some of the worst offenders are some of the league's leaders, like Liverpool is not great, I know it's an old stadium and stuff like that, but if you can't provide a provision for, for, for a certain amount or a certain percentage of disabled people, you should shut the ground because it's not fit for, for purpose. I, I go on at length about the fact that I'm proud to use the tube every day, but... Something like, I think it's something like 60% of the tube network disabled people can't use. Mm. So if you can't provide football to everyone who could possibly enjoy it, you're failing and you shouldn't be allowed into the game. You shouldn't be allowed to make money off the game when
0: you're excluding supporters whose money is as good as everybody else's. Mm. On, on On the media relationship thing, I mean, part of the reason it becomes even more complicated is because Actually, the reason that it's happening, the reason this commercial stuff is going on, and the reason that it's it is relentless with this coverage, is because people still consume it. Yeah, yeah. but they, they wouldn't. They wouldn't. There's no way money men, um, brands, commercial people would would be um, funding and sponsoring big projects, whether they be media related or football themselves related, if people weren't consuming it, if they weren't mm-hmm. getting a return on that investment. So, in actual fact, it's the general public. And their relentless—I keep using the word relentless, but it really is—and their sort of incessant need for Exhausting. More, and more, fo- yeah, more and more football <laughs> yeah. coverage yeah. and, and, and inter- interaction with uh, the
2: game. And Jim, on that as well, you know, when when people, you know, like us, we do we, we do a show, and you have people who do uh, other football shows that people absolutely love. Sometimes, like like I said earlier, they get a little bit ahead of themselves and one has to watch oneself because it's the game we care about. Absolutely. If if, if certain podcasts or if certain, you know, even if Match of the Day ceased to exist, we all love Match of the Day dearly, people would still go and watch football. What you really want to know is who scored the goals and how did they look and, and mm. how did the game play out? And then from that, everything else comes. Yeah, mm.
3: I think the explosion of, uh, of the interest in it as well that Luke's touched on there is, is so much down to the explosion of the internet, which means that, that you know, people in other countries can see, can see the quality of the leagues in Europe and it's become popular in the USA and obviously in China it's become really, really big. So it's just sort of evolved with that, isn't it? It's, it's, most of the audience for the Premier League isn't based in England. Mm. like it's, mm. it's insane. I, I touched touch on in the book. Man United estimate they've got 100 million fans in China. That's, that's way more <laughs> yeah. than the population of Britain. That's, it's incredible. It's, but, you know, we, we're talking about all this internet coverage or media coverage as well. It's great in another sense yeah. because, but it's truly global and it's the, it first, is. Well, it's the first time that a sport has been able to be that. Yeah, and what's interesting is, as well, as Luke touched on again, like it is important that we keep it simple because it has the same fundamental aim as those ancient games that we were talking about. That it's you know where it's come from this sort of primal right. need in, in a sense. And it's tempting to look at it and think the bubble will burst, but the world is, is so massive that I guess it's just about the Premier League in particular, I guess, maintaining its quality and its appeal, isn't it? Because people are going to want a slice of this pie, you know, other leagues are going to say, How can we appeal to China and appeal to the USA in the same way?
0: Yeah, if you're if you're living three and a half thousand miles away from a team that you quite like watching, I mean, you're now able to watch them exactly. Mm. In some
3: cases, it's easier for you to watch them than it, it yeah. is for us. Here.
0: And, and of course, football clubs, if they've got any sort of marketing nous about them, because that seems to be a huge part of it, know that, that they need to get out there to, to bigger to, to bigger um, to bigger countries and to bigger populations to make to make as much money as they can. But at the same time, that's key to their success as well on the field because that gives them more budget and more mm. chance to get better players. Mm. I, I conclude the chapter by essentially suggesting that both things are, are sort of almost intertwined, and he's unable to separate them now. They're, yeah. they're clearly so intertwined that you know the clubs have got their own channels, mm. their own TV stations, mm. all that sort of thing, and, that, and that's essentially the, where the game is going. And that's it.
2: Both intertwined. The media is very much a part of, yeah. of football.
0: Yeah.
3: Let's move on to the next object. It's Jim's hat. It is my hat. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's a hat that you guys bought me for my birthday because it, it happened to fall while we were in Kiev for mm. Euro 2012. And I've um, got to be honest, guys, it strikes me as a bit of a panic buy. But I, um, <laughs> How dare I, you? Hang you on, j- on j- a minute. J- oh, you ha- were you happy with it? Yeah. It's a great hat. Yeah. Yeah, Why well are you wearing it today if you're not happy with it? <laughs> um, I I love it. It's I'm clearly just... for the cold weather and Indeed. we're enjoying a nice, relatively warm yeah. w- autumn so far. <laughs> to, if you can't picture what I mean, it's the sort of Soviet hat that one of Arnold. Schwarzenegger's sort of, one of the people he mows down in one of his movies would probably wear. Yeah, um, It's got those big sort of earmuff things and what it reminds me of is it, kind of how lucky we've been actually to to go abroad and see some of the games that we have because as well as going to, to Kiev in 2012, we also went out to South Africa in 2014 mm-hmm. and we, we've done some quite cool trips and for me, writing the, the fans chapter in particular, I wanted to draw on those experiences. We have been very, very lucky but I, I think when writing that chapter, I wanted to get across, I, I wanted to sort of almost aim it at those people who think for, Football is sad, and who will will tie you with with a, a particular brush for liking f- football and make make assumptions about you. And when you mean say sad, you mean sort of like tragic, and yeah, yeah and okay. sort of there is definitely a nerdiness to being a football fan, but I think that's that's to be embraced for one thing. And one one of the things people say quite often is, "Ah, oh, it doesn't matter. It's it's pathetic to care about it. It's just twenty two millionaires kicking the ball around, blah blah blah." And uh, yeah, it is all that, but it, it is important. Why it is your you're frustrated or upset if your team lose? And I, I think that's a very interesting thing about being a fan because you don't you don't really choose. That. Do you? You you care because you just do.
0: A friend of mine, very very intelligent man, he's absolutely obsessed with Liverpool. He takes it actually personally when Liverpool are beaten to the point of where he'll and it's happened in the past. I'm not coming to the pub tonight. <laughs> I just don't feel like it. When Liverpool won the Champions League in 2005. You didn't 2005, see it for three weeks. He, no, he, <laughs> he genuinely said to me like, in a really heartfelt way because I watched a game with him, this is the best night of my life. <laughs> <laughs> and and, actually, and he, he spent it with you. He's, other, quite, <laughs> he's, otherwise, I'm not suggesting it's unintelligent to feel that way. I'm just saying it's, it's curious because he's not and then rational man is what yeah. I'm saying. Yeah. So, but football can bring that out. Absolutely, in
3: people. we've all been lucky enough to be at various Champions League finals. And Marcus and I, we went to Rome, didn't we, to see Barcelona against uh, Man United. And mm-hmm. you guys saw was it Dortmund against Bayern at Wembley? Yeah, at Wembley. Yeah. yeah. So we're very lucky to have experienced that. But the the atmosphere in those grounds, especially when none of us have any association with those clubs, mm-hmm. was was phenomenal. I've never experienced anything like it, and it's it is a truly powerful thing. It's sort of a it's this feeling that you can only really experience if you're invested in it. It's it's a, it's a whole biological process that a yeah. lot of people will never get to appreciate well it's funny and going back to what you said, Luke, about your mate, the Liverpool fan in the
2: foreword, I mentioned something similar actually now that's only ever happened once to me i think and i and I mention it there, but it's true football can just throw you sideways in a way that you would never mm. even imagine. To me, that's, that does sound like irrational behaviour, and that's too far. But it's
0: about belonging, isn't it? Because if you look at the fact that Leicester City just won the Premier League this last season, if you were going to boil that down, Leicester City fans who've, who've supported that team for a long time through thick and thin, mostly thin, mm. have now in a position where some of them will be taking almost personal credit for their team winning the Premier League title. Oh, we did this, we did that. As they should, though, because they've no, no, spent not so, so much time. I'm not saying they shouldn't, mm. but I'm just saying, if you boil it down, yeah. have they actually done anything yeah. towards it? <laughs> Other than obviously put their money in and go and support mm-hmm. their team, which is important. Mm. But the point is, it's hard to think of anything else where you would so willingly take such a lot of credit publicly mm, for something yeah. you haven't really well, done.
3: One of the things I touch on in this chapter, actually, is that you know, football is something you love so in a way if you love it you're sort of claiming to know about it so when you support your team you stake your reputation on them yeah. so when you lose oh, people laugh at you hard, very it, very and hard when it, you yeah. win you, that's where you sort of get credit. Yeah, is, credit
0: it's always talked about local bragging rights isn't it? Mm-hmm. whenever a game a local derby happens it, it is. certainly
2: is uh, ok it's time to get back to our audiobook the football ramble and let's head to a chapter called players that was penned by you Pete why did you want to nab this one
1: I think probably because I wanted to do the stadium chapter a lot and then I thought well if I've done quite a dry subject and try to, you know, bring bring it to life a little bit. Uh, I thought players would be a little bit easier. So this is very
0: much my dessert chapter. I see. The characters in the game is something you get to look at as your meat and drink. Oh, yeah, exactly. Oh, it's fascinating.
2: Fascinating. You're saying meat and drink, he's saying dessert. Yeah. Have them
0: all all on the same plate. The full course, I would say. (laughs) Enjoy
2: it. Uh, Well, let's hear a clip now. And and here you are pondering about the apparent chasm between mere mortals like you and me, more you, and (laughs) professional footballers.
1: Footballers used to be like us. Broken, fallible, heart-on-the-sleeve humans who just so happened to have a decent left foot on them. They didn't need to commit to a life of riches and fame at the age of five. They were free to live a little. Maybe learn a trade on the side, play a little non-league and get discovered while working as a sparky on a housing estate. Although I appreciate the sacrifices and devotion to the craft of the modern footballer, they have about as much in common with me as a Michelin-starred chef, a NASA engineer, Wonder Woman... Because of this, meeting your idol is invariably like sniffing a bottle of week-old milk. You know it's on the turn? You know you'll be wholly disappointed with the experience, but for some ridiculous reason, you want to make sure. Nowadays, the modern footballer is a well-drilled PR mini-mogul. They give toothy smiles to every potato-faced youngster they encounter, knowing any slip-up could lose them thousands, if not millions, of social media followers. They conduct every conversation with their manager behind a cupped hand, knowing there are thousands of cameras filling up millions of SD cards, each taking in every conceivable trajectory, positioned in every conceivable place. And that's before we get to the scourge of the camera phone. That was a clip from the
2: chapter Players by Pete Donaldson. Uh, Whenever anybody asks you, what would you do with your life if you could do anything? what, What job would you do? I always say professional footballer. Now, I know that only leads you up to the age of 35, 36, 37 or something like that, but it's true. If I could have done anything with my life, it would have been professional footballer for the first, as I say, 37
0: years. It's a common one, isn't it? And one that we all fall into fairly sort of lazily, I guess, by Mm -hmm. saying that. It's it's interesting, though, because I interviewed a a troubled ex-professional footballer fairly recently, and he said one of the things that he finds fascinating and actually quite odd is that with all the increasing coverage that we've obviously just talked about earlier... So Football fans only really consider the two hours between three and five on a Saturday mm. and the two hours on a Tuesday night or whatever. Yet, in the reality, certainly in his experience, it was, you was know, a world away from that. That's essentially four hours a week. Yeah. The rest of the time, um, obviously training aside, and they don't do an awful lot of training in terms of comparing it to an everyday full-time job. Mm. So it's completely different. And it can be, not always, but it can be an absolute mm. nightmare. Well, it's, it's such an intriguing profession. And in any sports...
2: Profession really is, but but football in particular. If you think about it, for the first, you know, say between, we're talking a very successful football career here. So between the ages of eighteen and thirty six, you're making enormous money. You're playing in in huge stadiums. People chanting your name. You're absolutely loved. After that, where do you go? It's not even like you can become, you know, like the Rolling Stones. Your best years are behind you, but you can still fill a stadium. You can still (laughs) fill a stadium. What you do, you can still do, what you do in an older man way, in football it goes. And so those, I don't know, as I say, 15 odd years or whatever it may be, are so incredibly scrutinised and so lauded and so much written about them.
1: It is a fascinating thing. And and having so much disposable income, but not really having anything to spend it on apart from just objects. You yeah, can't yeah. you can't travel yep. you really. You get a couple of weeks off in the mm-hmm. summer and they're usually just, you know, found in Dubai or Miami or LA or something like that. But for me, that would be the most frustrating thing, yes. not being able to escape and do your own thing. Yeah. It'd be You're like being a, a teacher. A yeah, it's insane. It's insane. Well, it is like being at school really. In, in mm. a sense as a, a professional. And some footballer. and some and some men and women need that regimen. But yeah. a lot of
0: people can't handle it. You, you essentially sign yourself up these days, particularly, to a life of that. Mm, and, and yeah. of course, it's not a terrible job, all things being equal. Mm. In the grand scheme of things, it's clearly not a woe-is-me story. Mm. But there are a lot of restrictions that aren't otherwise considered by the average football w- fan. Where are
1: you going to meet? Your wife or husband. Yeah. It's going to be a nightclub where all eyes are on you. Mm. There's going to be a certain criminal element that is going to gravitate towards you, so you've got to avoid that. There's going to be a certain type of person who's going to be attracted to the fame and fortune. So how do you weed that out? How do you, yeah. how do you not go insane when you're talking to someone who you think is just a normal person and you're just wondering about what are they going to hit me with mm. that I'm going to be blindsided by. And you by. struggle
2: with that
0: yourself, of course, Exactly. He struggles to, to make friends. But I mean, <laughs> like, but the, the big, speaking of that, the biggest thing that came out of that David Beckham documentary where he went away with some of his old school friends to South America because he'd never really travelled uh, for exactly the reasons Pete's mm. just listed. But he actually says at one point to the camera, I can't really make friends. I'm not able to do that because yeah. I don't really know what their motivation mm. is. So that's why I'm here with all my really old friends. But in a way, there was something quite tragic and actually quite mm. sad mm. about that. There is. Yeah. But think...
2: it's changed a lot, hasn't it, with footballers? Because footballers would drink down the pulp. You know, yeah. pe- people said they could have a chat with a footballer. With well, people football said that a
0: they, they that, a trade and stuff as well. Completely.
2: Yeah. And, and, you know, David Batty, I think it was David Batty, he used to do um, a, a few handyman jobs in the afternoon. Stuart Pearce as, as well. Oh, Stuart, Stuart maybe. He was he, an electrician, wasn't he? Yeah, because yeah. he, he never really thought of football as being a, a, yeah. a proper career. So you think, Jim, that we'll have those kind of stories going forward because... The vast riches of, of the top flight footballers are obviously thus that they don't need to. I know that yeah. not all footballers are on 100 grand a week. You know, you do have
3: lower league footballers. And yes, it's a decent wage, but of course, even, comparatively even, speaking. You know, even teenagers at big clubs will be on, you know, thousands a week, which mm. is insane. And it's so much more than most, most do people know. Do you think, you know, top players now are behind the, the velvet rope, if you like, and they are there to stay? Uh, yeah, I can't see... Um wages ever decreasing now, mm-hmm. but it's nothing new, people thinking that football, footballers are overpaid, that's pretty much always been the case, no, 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 even but... when they did sort of drink down the pub with the fans. But I'm talking about that chasm between the fans, do you think then that's it, that the footballers will always be inaccessible now? Yeah, of course and I think as well, another thing as a footballer, I guess you've got to have your eyes on, is if say you get a career ending injury, which are, you know, are quite rare now, but still do happen, what else are you going to do? They don't learn how to do anything else, do they? And so after football it becomes a bit of a problem, I wonder if now they earn so much that they can cushion themselves, but even then there's pressure to make investments that mean in a short career, you know, you have to set yourself up for life with quite smart financial decisions that might not necessarily be well, your remit.
0: A lot of a lot of footballers appear to be um or even ex footballers appear appear to be quite poorly financially advised. Yeah. I mean the bankruptcy rate for ex footballers is four or five times higher than the national average. Mm. But of course, I mean I agree with Jim to an extent that it's very difficult to see it going the other way because when people say to me, which it does happen fairly regularly, oh, footballers are overpaid, my answer is always the same, which is where do you want the money to go? Who who do you think deserves the money more? Because whether you like it or not, it's a £5 billion industry just with TV rights for the next three years in the UK alone. So who do you want to get that money? It's also private money. Well, this is it, Jim. mm. Players are really the only avenue you can give that money to because they make it all happen.
2: It's very true. It's time to move on to our next item, and we're looking at you now, Luke. That's me. The object that you brought in. What have you got Uh, for uh, us? Sorry about
0: about the Yeah, I've um, I've actually brought...
2: You've brought in... It's a bin bag, by the looks of it. What's in the bin bag? That is what we're uh, asking here. Here we go. He's well prepared. It's
0: a... (laughs) (laughs) It's a pair of Adidas Copa Mundial football boots. Copa Ooh. Mundial's. Got, yeah. got some mud on them as well. Mine, clearly well loved. The, the boots I've had for about, I don't know, probably about 10 years now, maybe a bit longer. So many strikers'
1: skin cells on these studs. You're raking down round. the back of their legs. Fairly let's point, have, if, you, if, if you
0: smell them, they smell very authentic. Fairly well, they do Fairly uh, irregularly used these days.
2: But this is a sign of the times as well, because I used to like Copper Mondiales as well. And and World Cups with the studded version. These are the moldies for for all you boots fans. And uh, they're black, predominantly black boots. Yeah. Yeah.
3: People think of referees wearing these boots now. Yes. Middle aged I mean, man almost. someone wearing white boots in the Premier League used to seem like a real flash thing to do, didn't yeah. it? it was, these
0: were like the go-to boots to have when we were young. Yeah. They're like wearing a pair of slippers. They really are. And the yeah. reason I brought them in is because I wrote a chapter about grassroots.
2: Indeed, yeah. Well, as you say yourself, that's definitely a cue to hear. Another clip from the audiobook of the Football Ramble. And this is you keeping it real.
0: For every Cristiano Ronaldo tantrum, Giorgio Chiellini slide tackle and Lionel Messi mazy run, there are several million of us trying and failing to replicate them on a bumpy pitch at playing fields all over the country every single week. Football at the grassroots level has its own style though, its own unwritten rules and culture and its own universe in which the players operate and function. I played football at what could accurately be described as the lowest level of organised football possible for years and I honestly enjoyed every second of it. These days, although my playing days are behind me, I often head over to the playing fields near my parents' house on the Sunday morning when I'm visiting to watch the local league teams playing, usually in all weathers with a huge amount of passion and enthusiasm for the game. What manifests itself almost every time is a hugely enjoyable engrossing melodrama in which everyday men are cast in the role of hero, occasionally, villain, more often, and bit part accessory to both glory and failure on an almost minute-by-minute basis. I genuinely enjoy watching football at this level over any other for a mixture of reasons, including the fallibility of the protagonists, nostalgia and realism. It is impossible to feel far removed from the game when you can hear and feel almost every kick from just a few yards away.
2: That was from the chapter Grassroots, written by Luke Moore. Grassroots Football. We are all very familiar with that. We don't know what it's like to be a professional footballer or play in front of 50,000 people. Mm. We know what it's like to pretend. We know what it's like to pretend and we know what it's like to go down the park on a Sunday morning or whatever it is with your mates playing in a team.
0: Well, the reason it was important, I felt, for me to write, I really was passionately wanting to write this chapter is because for a good period of my life, I didn't actually get to watch an awful lot of games on that Sunday or sometimes on that Saturday afternoon because I would be playing. I would be playing with my friends in in a local team or whatever. And that actually, when I started thinking about it, that's a big part of football. Mm. So people, you might, we might write something in the book about you know going to the Champions League final and, and as Jim said, we've been fortunate enough to do that. Not everyone's going to experience that. The vast I mean.
2: majority of people who will ever watch the sport won't But People will games.
0: know what it's like to have a kick around absolutely. with their friends and, and because you've got the referee there and the assistant referees and there. You do feel that a part of it. And grassroots
2: football looks so different around the world as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely wonderful. I think David Beckham said something quite nice. He said that uh, you know England may well have created the game of football or formalised the rules of football, the heart of football perhaps maybe in England I suppose one could say in a slightly pompous way but when he went to Brazil with Manchester United in that slightly uh, strange uh, world club championship Mm -hmm. he said that he was on the beaches of uh, the Copacabana and all around there with kids playing football and all the rest of it and he went this is where the soul of football is you know I'm sure we all have stories of, of traveling abroad just seeing grassroots football around the globe as I say the terrain can look different the type of skills that maybe people prefer to to play but ultimately the essence is the same It's trying to recreate or just enjoy themselves well
0: it is a recreation because that's that's interesting to me because the way that the professional game informs the sunday league grassroots game is yeah. actually very interesting mm. the players no matter if they're adults or, or young kids will want the boots that their favorite player yes yeah. they'll say things that they've heard older players or professional players when they've gone to a game say mm. and actually what exists is a a big chasm between what People think they're able to to do, yes. and what they're actually able to do. Yeah. So you, you'll go. I mentioned in the chapter as I've just read, going into the, the playing fields over the back of my parents' house on a Sunday morning, go for a walk over there and see people. Now all these players, I'm not I'm not judging these players because I'm one of them or I was one of them. They're all, they're all fairly terrible footballers, right? Mm. If they weren't, they wouldn't be playing here. Yeah. But they still say stuff like, right, let's get our passing game going, let's knock it mm. about, yeah. let's turn on. the... And, and they can't do that because mm-hmm. they're not able to do that. But yeah. the p- most important thing is they're enjoying themselves and that's what they mm-hmm. want. Well, to they are
2: doing. recreating the acts of professional people. I mean, think about that if you did that in, in other walks of life. You know, people say, oh, he's a terrible handyman because he's trying to do the job of a <laughs> professional electrician or something. Yeah, yeah, he can't do it. Yeah.
3: And it's the same trying to build the house from scratch <laughs> it's already a house there but one of, the, one of the classic sort of types that you see in those sort of games is we've all played with this guy or indeed been him the guy who just shoots from everywhere hmm. that guy's a dreamer yeah Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean he's just he's picturing those goals in his head and he's, he's just going to try and make it happen regardless of how frustrating it is for everyone else who's available for a pass
0: well I talk about um, the different types of grassroots football player you get in the book and I break them down into parts and um, he's definitely one yeah. of them
2: but then of course in the professional level you get someone like Cristiano Ronaldo and it works out okay forever yeah. um, I, I, we're talking of I suppose, is this the sweet spot between amateur and professional football? Uh, The England national team. Yeah. We haven't talked too much about them for obvious reasons. We didn't want to depress you too early on in the the (laughs) podcast. But at the moment, the England national team are in in a bit of a funny way. And it's funny, the history of the England national team, it's almost like football in this kind of microcosm. Yes, they've had a tiny bit of success, but really most of it's been a
3: bit of failure and disappointment. Yeah. The early days before success, we assumed that we uh, were successful before international started to be played because we had this whole idea that we'd invented the game. Yes. Then obviously a bit of vindication in 66 when we did win and we've just been trying to live up to that ever since. It, it really that, was that like been a that's been something that's happened
0: from early on because England refused to go to the early World Cups. did did, yeah. We're we not really interested in that sort of stuff. 1950
2: was the first World Cup England, right, was which was I think the fourth World Cup.
0: But I think up until, just as a casual observer, sort of been doing the show and, and enjoying football for the last however many years, I think up until maybe a, a few years years ago, people thought, that's ah, just a bit of a blip, you know, we'll be back yeah. up there soon. Yeah. And now people are starting to think, this is bad. Yeah. I, We've I, peaked. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, my, my, you know, I, I didn't like football, I must admit, until I was about um, 14, 15, and my first World Cup was World Cup 94, which England weren't involved in, mm. you know what I mean? So my heroes are Roberto Baggio and Romario, uh, and the Ireland football team and stuff like that. So, and then my chosen football teams were Hartlepool and Newcastle United. So, yeah. I mean, neither of them have had any success in my lifetime. I see the possibilities before me, but my love of football doesn't come from any sort of success. It yeah. just comes from, oh, that was almost
0: passable, <laughs> wasn't it? You, you do get used to it. Obviously, as a Portsmouth Ooh. fan, that, that the FA Cup win we had in 2008, that wasn't, I didn't sort of think to myself, oh, great, now we're on our way. I thought, mm. oh, this is yeah. quite nice. This is yeah. something yeah, to, something to last. It. But Marcus, you're the one who's always asking the questions. So I want to ask you a question. Yes. Can you foresee England winning a European Championship or a World Cup, the two big tournaments, uh-huh. in the next, say, 30 years.
2: Or if we get invited to the Copper America in yeah, South America. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: this, this is the frustrating
2: thing, because I can. But I think to myself, but it probably won't happen. That's the annoying but thing why about why do you England. think it won't happen? Because I'm a realist. You need to have a bit of good fortune at a tournament, but also you need to recognise some of the faults that are already there and have a, a bit of an overhaul of the national game, which England have talked about for so long. And I just don't see England being canny enough, being wise enough, being streetwise enough to get to to a To be humble enough. To be humble enough could be the word there. I think the Premier League doesn't help the England national team in some senses. England is the only country, I would argue, where the quality of the National League is better than the national team. And I think that you see the quality week in, week out. And people are moving away from caring about the England team, which I didn't think would ever happen because Mm. people in this country cared about England for so long. I sort of choose to be realistic and say no because it's the hope that kills you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If that answers your question in any way. Uh, But that brings us to the end of uh, the special edition of the Penguin podcast from the Football Ramble crew. It's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from you, Jim. Yeah, goodbye. Luke, say goodbye. Goodbye. Peter. Goodbye, everyone. It's been an absolute pleasure. For all the latest information about the Penguin podcast, you can follow at Penguin UK Books. And if you listen via Acast, you can see pictures of the objects we've been talking about. Cheerio. Cheerio.
3: Jamie Vardy, the free-scoring talisman behind Leicester City's Premier League title, has become an against-the-odds footballing hero the world over. Setting the record as the first player to score in 11 consecutive Premier League matches, he helped Leicester City beat odds of 5,000 to 1 to become champions. Defying all expectations, Jamie Vardy, the boy from nowhere, is simply one of the greatest sporting stories of all time.
4: I barged open the dressing room door threw my shirt down and turned on the TV. I was raging. I couldn't sit down. There was a chair in front of me and I held on to the back of it, gripping it so tightly that my knuckles turned white. As the TV came to life, I watched a replay of the sending off from a camera at the opposite end of the ground. John Moss, the referee, was 40 yards away without a clear view, yet he decided that I dived. Not only that, but he couldn't wait to get his cards out. There was no thinking time. I heard the door open and assumed it was one of the staff, but Becky walked in. She was worried that I'd lose it and start rearranging the dressing room and her instincts weren't far off the way I was feeling. It was the first time I'd been sent off as a professional footballer and with only four matches remaining and the Premier League title in sight, the timing could not have been worse. Not that I was thinking that far ahead, A sense of injustice was burning inside me as I looked at my teammates running their bollocks off trying to protect our 1-0 lead against West Ham. There was still more than half an hour remaining. It looked like we would hold on, but with six minutes to go, Moss decided that he wanted a bit more of the action. He penalised Wes for fouling Winston Reid in the area. Wes had his hands on Reid, granted, but the West Ham defender made a lot of it and flung himself to the floor. Andy Carroll equalised from the spot, cancelling out the goal I'd scored in the first half and two minutes later, Aaron Cresswell made it 2-1 with a tremendous left-foot shot. As the ball arced over Kasper's head and into the top corner, I held my head in my hands. I felt angry and helpless. I wanted to chase a lost cause, make another run, force a mistake, throw myself at a cross. Yet all I could do was stand and watch. With the game deep into injury time, Becky headed back upstairs, leaving me alone in my thoughts. I knew that if we lost it, it would be seen by others as the moment when Leicester finally cracked. Yet I still hadn't given up on the game, not with the spirit and fight in that group of players on the pitch. We'd proved time and again that we never knew when we were beaten, rescuing points from desperate situations and even with ten men, I thought we'd get another chance. What I didn't realise was that Moss had another controversial decision in him. After turning down our appeals for a stonewall penalty, after Angelo Ogbona had his arm around Huthi's neck, the West Ham centre half did the same thing to me in the first half, the referee penalised Carroll for a foul on Jeff that was the softest call of the lot. It felt like a classic case of a referee deciding that two wrongs make a right. Not that I was complaining at this stage, of course. Leo, showing balls of steel, slotted home and I jumped around in the dressing room like the Leicester fans I could hear behind the goal. Suddenly, it seemed like a point gained and the mood among the lads when they got back into the dressing room was one of defiance. They were furious with the referee, who'd looked like a man in charge of a game that was too big for him. But the way we salvaged a draw gave everybody something positive to focus on. At home that evening... I was thinking back over everything. Not just the red card, but the implications of it. I was going to be suspended for the visit of Swansea the following Sunday and that made me feel like I'd let the lads down. I was missing at the critical stage of the season. I grabbed my phone and posted a message on the players' WhatsApp group. Sorry boys, I'm gutted I won't be able to fight with you next week. The responses came thick and fast. Everybody was telling me that there was no need to apologise and, in a sign that the West Ham match had strengthened, not weakened our resolve, promised to hammer Swansea next week. Jamie Vardy, The Boy
3: From Nowhere. Available now on iTunes and Audible.